Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. We have put together a programme which celebrates women. We find women who are striking out on their own and achieving some extraordinary results. I'm Linda Ness. And I'm Susie Thorpe. And we produce and present Women Making Waves. When people are reported missing to the police, a search is often launched. In Cambridgeshire, that search is likely to be assisted by Cambridgeshire Search and Rescue. We talk to Christine McLaughlin from the organisation, who tells us what it's like to be part of the search team. And we meet Katie Underwood, foodie and PR guru, who tells us the story of her career to date and the secret weapon she has to enable her to run a successful business while bringing up three children. That's all coming up on this episode of Women Making Waves. We've all heard of the Coast Guard and of Mountain Rescue, but did you know there is a Lowland Rescue Service? Christine McLaughlin is a member of Cambridgeshire Search and Rescue, a group of trained volunteers who are called upon by the police to help when vulnerable people go missing. Linda talks to Christine. We've all heard of the Coast Guards and of Mountain Rescue, but did you know there's a Lowland Rescue Service? Christine McLaughlin is a member of Cambridgeshire Search and Rescue, a group of trained volunteers who are called upon by the police to help when vulnerable people go missing. Christine, many thanks for joining us today on Women Making Waves. We understand what Mountain Rescue and the Coast Guard do and when they be called upon to rescue people, But what about Lowland Rescue? When are the Cambridgeshire Search and Rescue, or CAMSAR, called out? We're called out when vulnerable people go missing around Cambridgeshire. What made you want to join the organisation? How long have you been involved? I joined um, Norfolk Search and Rescue in 2014. I was relocating from Norfolk to Cambridgeshire, but I was living near King's Lynn, so I was sort of still in Norfolk. And um, blank canvas, I just decided that I wanted to meet nice people and nice people volunteer at fundraise specifically. Um, And I was chatting to somebody who was talking about search and rescue. So I found a link to fundraise with Norfolk Search and Rescue. Before I knew it, they'd kind of um, talked me into a training (laughs) night and I've been there ever since. (laughs) Wow. What kind of training do you do, Christine? I mean, we do different types of training. Basically, we go looking for people. Our main resource is looking for people on foot. But we train also to search near water. So we've got bank search training, but it's still on dry land. But it's it, you have to be careful near water. Mm. And we, we use bikes. Um, we're getting drones in. But yeah, basically, we're just trained to search for anything from a small piece of evidence to a person hopefully oh i see so sometimes if the police are looking for something you're called out to look for that as well that can happen there has been times i believe in the organization where they've potentially if there's been an aircraft um, that's gone down they might be looking for something that relates to the crash i've never been involved in anything other than looking for missing people so i guess when you see these long lines of people on the news kind of very very carefully sifting through fields and things presumably that would be people like yourselves that would be yes that's called a line search when we're doing that we're potentially looking for a piece of evidence that will show us a sort of direction of travel of the missing person so we could be looking for any medication they take pieces of jewelry that um, or mobile phones is obviously quite common if we if we can find their phone then um, if we know where they've been from their last known position or last known location and then we find a mobile phone, we've got a direction of travel. So Now, you're a search technician with CAMSAR, is that right? It is my main role, yes. I, ha- I have other ones, but that's my main role. What does that entail? The search technician is a qualified person to go looking for a um, vulnerable missing person. So we join teams of um, at least two or three people. We like to go out in teams of four or five, and the team will include a team leader, 
um, a medic, a scribe, a radio operator. Sometimes you have to do two roles depending on the size of your team. That's what we do. And how many call-outs do you tend to get, maybe over a year in general? If, if you're talking about, on average, it's probably one a week, but we have quiet periods and we have busy periods. So, um, yeah, but if you sort of average it out, obviously this year is quite unique to um, statistics, um, what with yeah. having sort of the lockdown. So um, that'd be interesting to see what difference that's made to our numbers. Yes, I was actually going to ask you about that because with the virus, there must have been a bit of an impact, I'm assuming, on people's mental health. Do you think that's driven up numbers? It's started to. um, We feel that there's more mental health issues, more suicides. When I was in in it um, at the start, our high statistic missing person would be somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's um, and but currently there's been a high number of a higher number it's not like sort of a daily figure but yeah they yeah. have gone up mental health and i'm assuming it's given you your own problems because you've still got to work as a team and i would imagine that getting close to the individuals and the teams must be a bit more of a problem and also the individual should you find them absolutely we've got a wonderful champion in our medical team who is actually a paramedic and he's spent a lot of his free time um, providing this COVID compliance training Um, and we're back face-to-face training, we're back doing call-outs and nobody feels uncomfortable. Um, If if they did, they just put themselves off call. Yeah, there are steps in place when we find a missing person depending on how sort of the condition that they're in we've got plenty of covid kit extra to what we normally have plus we've got extra so if our missing person is found unconscious or needs cpr we can add personal protective equipment to the missing person as well as well you know we can provide a mask um, and put steps in place so yeah he's been brilliant Mm -hmm. and what kind of qualities i mean you've talked about that you've got a medic on board what kind of qualities do you look for in your volunteers if they're going to be super fit or you know no we've just done a selection day of which I'm lucky to be a part of and basically we just want people to volunteer there are mostly everybody is is welcome we take strengths from their weaknesses so um yeah you just want to do it and and you've got to have the time to commit not just for finding a missing person but you we do have to train we have to find time to train and we have to find time unfortunately to fundraise because we don't get any government funding for for the organization at all so i was going to ask you about the training actually what kind of training do, do you do we learn how to talk over the radio we we learn how to navigate we do have to have an element of fitness we have to be able to walk five miles in two hours lots of sort of day-to-day stuff but we just hone those um, qualifications into being able to search for somebody and communicate with our team and communicate with other emergency services I notice that you've got vehicles involved as well. I was going to ask you about the fundraising because, you know, it must take quite a lot of money. I notice you've got um, an incident response vehicle and you've got a command unit as well. That must take quite quite a lot of uptake, really. It does. We've got um, a magnificent sort of fleet team. Once you volunteer in the organisation, there are areas that you can go into if you've got that. And we've got some lovely people that work in our fleet team and we've got a fleet champion who try and maintain the vehicles as much as they can in-house we're very lucky that a lot of garages realize that we volunteer so sometimes you know they they help us there but yeah it's it's um it's all down to the money we raise we it costs Mm. us at least thirty thousand pounds a year to just sort of stand still so yes i can imagine it would that is a lot of money to raise actually isn't it and we've had all our fundraising opportunities cancelled over during COVID. So, But again, we've got a treasurer who has managed to keep our bank balance healthy enough to support us through the last few months. Mm-hmm. So, um, And we've got a fundraising team that are now trying to find um, ways to, to get grants as well. We've got local councils um, have been amazing and that they've supported us with sort of checks here and there. 
we're managing it's it's been a challenge but but you're yeah, keeping, it's made us stronger, you're keeping going yes yeah. often often when you're when you're in these kind of problems it does actually yeah. now yeah. we're on women making waves so i've got to ask the question are there many women involved in search and rescue there are there, there's actually quite a few i mean there, there wasn't as many sort of the balance wasn't as as big as it is now but yeah it, it's really important to have women in the team because when we find a missing person sometimes they relate to a male or a female or an older person or a younger person so we have to have every diverse sort of situation available to um, bring a sort of missing person home really so yeah it's it's getting much healthier it's still in in the male favor but yeah we're getting there I think it's useful for people to hear about this. And with it going yeah. out in a women's programme, then there might well be women listening. You never know that they'll be keen. I'd, I'd love that because I, I do think um, that women have, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I'd, yeah, it, I would love to get more women in. Um, I think we would um, tick a few more boxes, you know, the, the compassion, the... Empathy. Mm. yeah. I mean, it's it's actually so brilliant that everybody in Search and Rescue has that common... You've got, um, you know, people that are, are unemployed through to police officers, through to medics, through to lawyers, through to... You've got them all coming in, and I'm quite... I'm a supportive person. I'm, I'm in administration. I'm a secretary, and I support a lot of people. And sometimes I get quite intimidated, and this is the first time I've never felt intimidated. People seem to like me they seem to listen to me and it's the first time I just want everybody to experience what I've experienced that that whole blank canvas that I did have starting again this was the best paint on canvas that I could have imagined so yeah yeah. I think it's good if you're working towards a common goal with a, a team of people as well because you've all got the one outcome in mind and you're probably fairly like minded people yeah roughly I think so yeah yeah which is it's always great, but it's always great joining these groups and societies generally, actually. I know. Well, it, it, it is like joining a, a youth club, you know, when you were younger. It's like joining a club mm-hmm. or joining Cubs and Scouts and, and you learn how to do things and you, you make good things happen. And yeah, and it's good. You know, they, what do they say about um, mental health? Volunteer and sing in the shower. So, tick tick. That's great. I'm kind of guessing that that you and your team sometimes might have to put yourselves at at risk during the searches. Have you ever felt concerned when you've been out on one of these missions? No. Sometimes it's highlighted that a missing person might be dangerous. Our job is to locate them. We have the support of the police. It's the police that call us out um, so they've got our back all the time that's why we also never go out in less than two people we've always got somebody else uh, and like I said preferably three or four minimum in a team but no mm-hmm. I've, I've never felt vulnerable Threatened. myself yeah no and, and it's 24 7 this yep. service isn't it presumably yeah. most of your volunteers will be working so it must be quite tough to get people to get involved with this it is, which is why we're always trying to um, recruit. <clears throat> Luckily, that you know, there are shift workers, there are people who've retired. And th- the good thing about um, that is if we've got a long search, we can have sort of a rolling search. So when people who can get there um, during work hours, by the time we've finished work and we can turn up, they can rest or go home. So recruitment is um, currently quite key right now, but uh, it's finding the recruits to commit to sort of everything unfortunately i guess that searching for a missing missing person is one thing but finding them i imagine that might be unwelcome for the individual in some cases how do you cope with that we've got brilliant support we've had training in how to deal um back in sort of the early days um, we had a wonderful speaker who tried to commit suicide himself so sometimes we get valuable um, information from previous missing people and that helps us learn from from their involvement and how to deal with it. But there's so many courses that's offered to us um, free, mostly, um, if we can get it. But the, there are definitely courses out there and we just learn more and more about different conditions. And again, having a diverse range of people to be able to deal with 
um, finding a missing person because we get as much information as we can. So if we know that there's a certain type of person, we try and encourage the right person in each team that will be able to sort of approach them. Yeah, that's it, it's quite a balancing act. It's quite tricky. Mm. I was going to ask you that, actually. I was going to ask you if ever you've met any of the people afterwards that you've rescued, you know, when, the, when they're maybe back with their family and maybe feeling a little bit better, or does that not tend to happen? Um, it's I suppose they, they embrace us a little bit more on social media. I think the families that want to approach us tend to be the ones who've unfortunately um, that the missing person wasn't found alive mm. um, so we brought closure to their family that they want to embrace us I think social media is I think it's very difficult for somebody who's been missing and embarrassing for them so um, yes. I think they'd find it yeah. Too difficult, maybe too. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Because, yeah. but it's a it's a horrible part of, of life, isn't it? If someone's yeah. feeling that desperate, that they feel that that they just have to leave, and yeah. and you know escape, then I'm kind of assuming that that's a very difficult time for them, yeah. and they shouldn't feel embarrassed. Really, it's that can happen to any of us. And I believe that you've been involved in delivering PPE during the lockdown. <laughs> We have. During the lockdown, we were approached by the Red Cross as work closely with them, the Resilience Forum, and we were approached to deliver PPE and food for the vulnerable. And we were doing this with another organisation and they, the other organisation focused on the PPE and then we, we carried on delivering the food. So that, that kept us um, busy and sane through um, <laughs> lockdown as well. So... That, that was lovely. It was very, it was so appreciated. Yeah, some very emotional moments because they helped us as well because it was really important. It's still really important for us to get out, um, and, you know, to leave my flat and you're sort of bringing food to somebody who also lives on their own. So it yeah. was a real, yeah, it was win-win for everybody, that one. I can imagine, and it's a little bit different to what you do normally because there's an immediate outcome and someone's really grateful to have received it and you're talking to them and, and then you leave. Yeah. It's it's yeah. not that long drawn out, you might find someone, you might not, you know, yeah. you're waiting for an outcome, you're probably quite... I imagine it must be quite nerve-wracking at times, actually, you know, because in some respects you, you want to hear that they've been found, but you want to hear that they've been found well. Yeah. And that's, of course, sadly not always the case, I guess. It's not, no. Um, the longer a search goes on, um, the likelihood of them being found alive gets sort of less and less. But um, we've we've had stories recently in other teams where they've found a missing person after four days. So even after a four-day search, we're still looking to find that person alive. But we do sort of change our focus a little bit. Now, from what you're saying, I'm assuming that you are quite keen to get new recruits. So what would you say to somebody to encourage them to join you? Oh, I don't know. Normally, I just sort of jump on them at, at sort of awareness days and start talking to them. And I just think if you've got time to commit to find out more about us, to look us up on the internet, um, have a look at our social media pages. We do get a lot of recruits through big searches um, some some villages when they somebody goes missing they all come together and, and then when they realize that we're involved because a lot of people haven't heard of us mm. so uh, it, it's very difficult to get recruits and, and awareness and donations because of that I think that's absolutely true because as we said at the beginning of this interview we've heard of mountain rescue we've heard of the coast guard all very much in the same boat as you because they're all volunteer services um, it's just that they're working in different terrains but yes I hadn't uh, until recently heard of the lowland rescue because that's what you're called isn't it it is, yeah, Lowland mm. Rescue. Lowland Rescue. So yeah. I think it's it's fascinating to understand that you know you, that you're out there and to understand what you do. And thank you very very much for talking to us today on Women Making Waves. That's Christine McLaughlin from Camsar. an interesting hobby to have. I'm saying hobby, it's, it, it doesn't really smack of a hobby, this, but I guess for a lot of these people that take part, it is what they do in their spare time. But 
really rigorous, actually. I, I know that, you know, they, they do go out in all weathers. When the phone rings, they are out there doing whatever it is that the police require them to do and do something that's very worthwhile. Absolutely worthwhile it is. And, and you know, we've got to remember, these are volunteers doing this particular Cambridgeshire search and rescue. And mm. I'd, I'd never heard of Lowland Rescue Service until you speaking to Christine Linda. So, I mean, fancy moving house and then thinking, oh, I'll just join the Lowland Search and Rescue team at Cambridgeshire. I mean, that's just, it's, it's a pretty amazing <laughs> thing to do, isn't it? It is really, it is. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Coming up, we'll be joined by Katie Underwood, who runs a successful PR and communication agency. Cambridge 105 Radio. Join me, Neil Jones, every Tuesday here on Cambridge 105 Radio for the very best from the world of rock. Every week we'll bring you big name interviews, all the latest from the local scene here in Cambridge and the very best rock songs around. It's two hours of rock every single Tuesday from nine o'clock with me, Neil Jones, right here across the city in South Cambridgeshire on Cambridge 105 Radio. Need dropping off at work? Miss the bus and must make that urgent appointment. Need picking up after a night out with your mates? Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715 715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Sarah, one of CKLG's friendly tax advisors. Creating and preserving wealth is an aspiration for many of our clients. In our complex world of changing legislation and family circumstances, we listen and provide you and your family with bespoke tax advice tailored to your needs. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk. CKLG Accountants, your partner in business, your partner in life. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Katie Underwood runs a successful PR and communications agency. We met up with her to find out more about her. Restaurant professional Katie Underwood was exasperated by the quality of PR support available, so she did what a typical woman making waves would do – she set up her own PR business. We're interested in hearing Katie's story. Thank you very much for joining us today on Women Making Waves, Katie. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. Now, you went to school in Northamptonshire, but you chose to go to university in Cape Town, South Africa. So let's go back to that time. You're about to leave school, so what's your plan? to take a gap year and then do what every other person in my school was doing, go off to university um, in England. But um, yeah, after travelling across Africa um, on my gap year and hitchhiking and backs of trucks and doing lots of alternative things that my parents wouldn't enjoy, I um, (laughs) wouldn't let my my children do that today. But um, yeah, I I decided that that would be a much more interesting route to take. So... So there you are in South Africa. So so what happened? Why did you not come back to university then? When I was travelling down Africa, I met somebody who said that the University of Cape Town was really beautiful. It was on the side of Table Mountain. It was an incredible place to study and it had a great vibe. And so he gave me somebody's phone number. And the first day I arrived in Cape Town, uh, I phoned this person up and they gave me a tour of the campus. And I... I went to the admissions office and they accepted me there pretty much on the spot with my with my A-level results. I was I was packed up, ready to go. So they said, yeah, absolutely join us at the beginning of term. So that was an interesting phone call that I had to make to my parents. <laughs> I can imagine. So they're expecting you to come back. You never came back from your gap year effectively then. Did you just stay on there? 
I never came back, but I would chase the summers. So I would come back at Christmas. Um, no, I would go there at Christmas, and I would come back in the middle of summer for my birthday. It was freezing cold in Cape Town, really windy. You can't use an umbrella because it's too windy. So you oh, just gosh. get. It's just it's a very, very um, yeah. It's it got some wild winter weather. So I would yeah just chase the summer around the globe, and it was it was fantastic. That sounds terrible, Katie. Yeah, so. I, I, I do wonder every day why I came back. I must say, I, I, I can imagine. What were you actually studying in Cape Town? I went there to study development studies, politics, wanting to change the world. Um, and I, after a few months in Africa, I definitely changed my perspective on things. I became, you know, we're really in a bubble here, the way that we perceive third world countries and they perceive themselves in a very different way. And it taught me how to look at things from a different perspective. And I realised that it wasn't my job to go in and change anything. It was, um, I needed to study the structures and the reasons why things were the way they were and yeah I, I kind of became part of that society in a different way so I ended up studying um, history and English but I looked at a lot of post-colonial studies um, I did a lot of writing from the perspective of South Africans Indians Chinese a lot of kind of colonized peoples and the perspective that I then got from you know, the alternative compared to how I would have studied things in the UK was um, was really valuable actually yeah when you were younger, did you always conform? It sounds like you were never quite conforming all the time. Did it? Did it? Did you, when you say different perspective, did you have an, a, a moment when you were younger that you didn't conform to things? Is this your life ahead? <laughs> uh, yeah, I suppose I've always been a little bit difficult, um, and, <laughs> difficult. Yeah, a, a difficult woman, and um, perhaps a difficult child. Uh, yeah, I, I was at boarding school and I definitely didn't really conform with that. But I did, you know, my results were really good. Um, but I had, I wasn't put in the Oxbridge stream, for example. People didn't expect me to be near the top of my class. But I thought that I was good and I was going to do well. And I, I proved that with my results. I got straight A's across the board. But I wasn't somebody that they would have expected to, to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that... I didn't want to follow my peers and follow the same path because I wasn't quite sure that that was that was really for me. I suppose I've had a, I've always been confident. You know, I'm a confident person. I think I'm going to do well. I work hard, and it might not be, I might not go about it in the same way. But mm. is that your parents doing? Is that something that you that you've seen in other people? Because it's lovely to hear how confident you are, mm. and it's something that's very, very important. It's something we try and get across, and we're making waves. But were your parents mm. ever as a, sort of a, having an effect on that? Well, my, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but my my, my dad um, my dad went to school um, locally, and he got expelled from school, but he he intercepted the letter. And he, um, his mum never knew. Love so uh, she's not with us anymore. But she, he, uh, he intercepted the letter and he just set up his own business. In, I think it was in the attic in his house. And yeah, he, he was an entrepreneurial minded person. And uh, yeah, he did, he did quite well in the end. But he went, he went and told his mum many years later. And her response wasn't positive. She couldn't see the funny side of it. Oh, really? Despite him, no, despite him being a very successful individual through his own, you know, off his own back, he, um, yeah, she, she wished that he hadn't got expelled from school. So effectively, she thought he was going to school every day, but he was yeah. kind of going out the door, then nipping back in and up the stairs yeah. to the attic and quietly, I think quite, so. <laughs> that's yeah, amazing. I think so. And yeah, he set up his business and... Um, yeah, it, he he was in um, computers at the time, you know, in the early 80s before they were really a thing. He just saw a niche and, and followed it through. And yeah, he was obviously quite confident in what he was in his abilities or he saw that there was something in it. Yeah, I, I, I possibly I'm a bit like, possibly I'm a bit like him. What about your mum, Casey? Does she have a, a sort of a part to play in this as well? Uh, yeah, so my, I always wanted to be a young parent. My mum was really young when she had me. I think she was... Just before she was 21, she had me. And so uh, when she left school, she didn't have very many qualifications, but she went back and studied when we were kids, got her maths GCSE so that she could become a teacher, went, did her, then did her A-levels when we were small, and then um, went to Cambridge and did teacher training. And then, yeah, became a teacher when I was a teenager. So, um, yeah, she was uh, the academic-minded person in my family, and I saw her studying when I was a kid, so... It was an example that was set for me that it was important and that she had to go back and do it again. So, yeah, you, you see that 
it wasn't just me who was studying, it was also her. You're at university in Cape Town. We haven't heard anything about food yet. I know you're a bit of a foodie. How did that creep in then? What happened next? Well, I really needed some money. <laughs> I was living in Cape Town. <laughs> and I saw in, in South Africa that people take the service industry really seriously. And I thought, I w- I'm going to go down to the waterfront in Cape Town and I'm going to see the busiest restaurant and I'm going to try and get a job there because they'll get the best tips. So I saw a restaurant where the, everyone was wearing white shirts and tuxedo bows, even the girls, and um, I just arrived with my unbrushed backpacker hair <laughs> and my sort of my sunburn and, um, and said, yeah, I would like a job. They asked if I had experience and I gave them my, my boyfriend's phone number in England and told them that he, they could phone him for a reference. He was my employer. And of course, they never phoned him, which was lucky, but <laughs> I had no experience. <laughs> There is an element um, of your dad here, I can tell yes, already. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just waitressing. How hard could it be? And it turns out it's actually really hard. But they, they took it really seriously. There was a full training manual. They gave you lots of checklists that you had to run through, lots of exams you had to take before you could even take orders or carry plates. I thought, oh, right, this isn't quite what I had signed up for. So I worked for two months pretty much for free because I wasn't earning any tips and you'd earn about five or six pounds a day working as a waitress in South Africa because of the exchange rate. Yeah, it took me two months to really become a pro waitress, but I knew everything about wine and food by the time I had sat that, that exam. I sat an exam at the bar. And um, yeah, so, you know, the, the perspective that that gave me was that would never have happened in the UK. Um, people hadn't, at that point, taken the service industry very seriously. And I could see really highly qualified people who were, you know, aspirational I wanted to be like these incredible people who could just swish through a restaurant take all the orders pick up all the stuff tell somebody about the 20 or 30 different wines from the region on the list and introduce the seafood do it by weight it was it was complicated it was a complicated job yeah and yeah I want I wanted a part of it, it gave me a buzz so being good at that put a spring in my step and you really picked the right restaurant there actually mm. didn't you <laughs> You did pick the right restaurant, rather than some backstreet place where you were just kind of slopping up to a table and throwing the plate down. I mean, you picked the right one because that, that's given you a fantastic grounding, presumably. Yeah, I wanted to do better there. Everybody was better than me, and I think that, that was, um, it was quite inspiring because I don't like being a bit rubbish, so I, you know, I was pushing quite hard to improve my knowledge, and it, it was a bit of a um, baptism of fire, really. Poor boarding school girl who had just arrived from off the boat in England it was, uh, yeah, they were speaking different languages. Um, it was, you know, working alongside the people that you'd only really seen in passing was a, a kind of a really interesting experience for me. And I learned how to speak Afrikaans, which is oh, not really? at all useful. Nobody's ever tried to hold a conversation with me in Afrikaans because they always reply in English, but I can understand it so I can overhear what's going on. Did you find parts of South Africa that were really, really challenging? And you thought, crikey, what am I doing here? No, I think that um, at that age, you, you're really flexible in terms of your how you perceive yourself. You go with the flow. And I felt like I was a South African person after a, a year or two. I mean, I spent fa- five years there, five, six years. So, yeah, I, I didn't really know England. So when I came back, I found normal English things really challenging, like... Oh, terrible things like never put petrol in my own car in South Africa because <laughs> people they, they they do that at the petrol station so when I came back age 23 I needed somebody to help me just to make sure that I was doing it right yeah there was an element of danger but of course you know it's something you hear about not necessarily something you see mm. um, and it was it was quite a western culture there in Cape Town and and yeah it it, it was just my life and I remember I was at boarding school, so I wasn't um, out and about in Cambridge doing fun things. I was in a lazy Northamptonshire village. I wasn't allowed out after seven o'clock at night. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I became myself, I think, being very independent in that environment. I couldn't go home to my parents' house on weekends. So I just became an independent adult. And you stayed on in South Africa after university? I started studying towards my honours um, and I got a place at Cambridge to come back to do a master's in Cambridge but the, the years didn't fit together so essentially it's January to December um, academic year in England and it is obviously October, September beginning um, yeah, all the way around January to December in South Africa so I got a place and I was going to come back to Cambridge to do my master's and I thought and I phoned them up and I said would I have this place if I don't finish the academic year because it doesn't really fit together anyway I didn't really wait for the reply I just came back anyway <laughs> and um, 
I don't know. I'm not really sure why I was doing that. But I came back to Cambridge waiting to hear from Cambridge University about my master's place. And I started working at a restaurant. And I just carried on in the restaurant. I didn't ever go and do my master's at Cambridge. I just stayed earning money. And yeah, they, basically they said to me, you you needed to have finished your, your honours year in, in Cape Town to, to take up this Cambridge place. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to work in restaurants. I'm going to make money and not be poor. I'm an impoverished student in a Cambridge <laughs> library because I'm really enjoying this new restaurant experience. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased I did because I met my husband on the first day in that restaurant. So. Oh, really? So then we're moving on to the next stage then. So, so yeah. you've changed your mind from being sort of academic into the, the real working world and you've now met your husband. And I'm, I'm assuming that that then took the natural course and, uh, and, and you, you got married eventually. Oh, yeah, after two kids. <laughs> it was <laughs> sort of went, went, around, went about it in, the, in an upside down way. But, but yeah, um, we're supposed to go to Cambridge, ended up just working in a restaurant in Cambridge and not going to Cambridge, um, and then having to work out what it was that we were doing. And my husband was a chef. We were working in a restaurant together, um, and we decided that we were going to do that together and embark on that new journey. And, um, yeah, I was obviously staying... My parents are from well, live in Cambridge. And so when I came back to the UK, I moved back in with my parents. And I hadn't lived with my parents since I was about 13 years old. So... Uh, I was looking to get out of that house <laughs> and so we moved quite quickly. And, and that kind of brings us on to what you're doing at the moment. What, what made you set up a PR a communications business? It seems a bit of a step away. I was working, my husband's a partner at Steak and Honor, and I was running the back of house communications for that business. And we opened a restaurant in 2017. And in the run up um, in 2016, I was pregnant with my third. We were trying to launch this this restaurant we were expanding our business and we had to communicate with everybody in Cambridge um, about the launch we had to speak we had to get that message to the customer base in Cambridge Um, and we did it by a variety of means we used social media a lot but we were one of the first businesses that were really activated um, a a really effective social media following in Cambridge And, and I learned on the job there were no handbooks. You couldn't study. <laughs> some of my clients, um, some of the people who work with my clients now say to me, oh, did you study this at university? <laughs> I say, no, there were no smartphones when I was at university. You know, there, there was no textbook. Yeah. So I, I learned how these things worked, and, um, and, and it was quite successful. The launch of the restaurant was a great success, but one of the things we did do was employ a PR company, and it was difficult. They, they couldn't do anything for us that we didn't give them. They weren't working within our business. They were outside. They were in London. They were getting the messages that we were sending them. And I thought, well, I can do this. I can do this better because I can advocate tirelessly for this business from within. I know who my customers are and I can reach them. I don't need a PR company. And I think a lot of businesses, really, they, they just don't have time to tirelessly advocate for their business publicly because they're busy. They've got their head down running their business so it was an accident that I started doing this because another business owner asked me to do the same thing that I'd done for our business for their business and so it started so it wasn't um, a sort of I didn't contrive to create a PR agency I first just took on a new client because he could see that I was I understood how it worked yeah yeah and 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 he wanted me to do it for him and um, I started to see that this level of support is something that everybody needs within their business to some degree and some people can do it really well themselves but if they've got their hands on the kind of the mode of production they absolutely cannot do anything other than just keep their keep their head above water and just kind of keep swimming Mm -hmm. so that's that's what I do now and I've found that actually you know just bringing all of those disparate elements together when it comes to communications if it's social media or newsletters or dealing with all of your reviews which are exhausting and you know quite soul destroying at times when you're operating a restaurant and you get a google review at two o'clock in the morning and you think oh no really um (laughs) to to speaking to magazines or to launching new products i sort of try and bring all those elements together and just make it a little bit easier for people to manage you use a lot of photography as well don't you is that really important bringing Mm -hmm. imagery into your twitter account and instagram Yeah, yeah. I think you know the, the culture now has become so visual that um, people are people respond to images, um, and so I was always kind of like an amateur photographer back in the day. I would go out for meals and I would be that person who took pictures of their food. And over time, you know, cameras have got better. I did some training. Um, I've got myself a Olympus camera, 
it's really, it opened so many doors. You know, for me, I, I took photos and wrote about restaurants because it was my hobby. I was interested in it. I lived that life. Even when I had kids, I would make sure I wasn't sitting at home with the baby. I'd take the baby out and we'd go and sit in a cafe or sit in a restaurant and I'd speak to the people who worked there. Um, and through sharing those images um, with other people, it, it kind of created a conversation. And you can do that from within a business as well. It's no good to say, this is what we're serving for lunch. You know, you have to ask a question. You have to get people to respond to you. And it's, it's part of a wider conversation that you can have with your customers. And that's what we're trying to create is something that's, you know, it's from within. It's real. It's not contrived. It's not run by a PR agency in London. It's you trying to have meaningful dialogue with your customers. Years ago, when you worked for a PR company, you had to be very careful that you didn't have a conflict of interest if you were in the same industry. How do you make each client different and how do you approach that without yeah. having sort of a generic knowledge of social media for restaurants? But how do you actually yeah. divide it? Yeah, it's a really good question. This is the challenge that I am now reaching is that I can't have a conflict of interest. I want to advocate for a business and be on their side. I work very closely with that business. So you know, I'm, I'm in the meetings, I'm in the business development meetings, I'm in the menu tastings. So there are only a few clients that I can take on at that level. And I have started to take on businesses that aren't restaurants, hospitality businesses, only if they approach me, only if they understand that my background really is in, in food and hospitality. Because there is no conflict of interest if I'm doing a, a beauty salon or another business that is just from a slightly different angle. Um, and that's where expanding to an agency really has begun because I have to bring on other experts to deal with those clients. My speciality is this, but a lot of the skills that we have are transferable across many different types of businesses. And so the conflict of interest really, it should never be a thing because we are always looking for new areas of business to work in to kind of show our skills to the best. And there are those businesses to the best advantage. Mm. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I now have um, a couple of people who work with me um, and they bring their own ideas to the table. Um, so it's not just me with my one set of ideas trying to do that <laughs> for every business. That's why bringing people into the business was so important, because when you work on your own, you know, you become blinkered, especially if you've got your head down all the time, like those businesses that I work with. So yeah. bringing other people in on it has really been eye opening. And yeah, so much more can come. From yeah, that. it's good for everybody. Yes, you're right. Yeah. It sounds pretty full on. And you've got three children. <laughs> I know it's a typical question that we ask women, and I actually hate having to ask this to mm. women because it should be the same for everyone, actually. But how do you manage? How do you cope with running this full-on business and three young children? My husband is a domestic goddess. <laughs> Whoa, yes! <laughs> so there are elements of the household that I don't have to manage because he is a systems orientated person he will make sure that we have the things that we need in the house he does the cooking and he he, he gets stuff done and I would not be able to do what I do if I wasn't married to my husband if I was married to one of some of my friends' husbands. I wouldn't be able to do it. So I'm very lucky. And uh, yeah, I don't shy away from that because, you know, he makes my life much easier. Much, much easier. That is a great answer. And it's quite an unusual answer as well, actually. I think you've you've struck gold there, actually. Yeah, Getting? I have. <laughs> yeah, I lock all the doors. I, can't, I won't let him escape. I've got a good one. You certainly have. The art of delegating. First, was it easier to hand over the children to your husband when you were working or did you find that you wanted to be in control in the home as well as at the office? Yeah, I really... Uh, I, I'm still the one, I feel like, who, who does the kids' stuff. I just, took, I just took... I've got three, the two oldest ones. I just took them to Croatia um, on holiday and it was so good to be able to do those things. It's a real treat for me. One thing I really don't have is a social life. So, you know, I've really put that on the back burner. I'll hang out with my kids if I've got any time. Yeah, it's still a, it's still a treat for me to, to do that. And, you know, we, we have childcare, we pay for the nursery, they go to school, they have you know, previously gone to after school clubs. And yeah, childcare's still mainly been my responsibility and it's something difficult to juggle. They're, they're of that age where, you know, they really want to hang out with me and I know that's not going to be the way forever. So, mm -hmm. I, yeah, mm -hmm. some people have said to me, you know, just be so much easier for you if you just got a nanny. And if you had a nanny, they'd be at home and they can do your pickups. And, and I'm just like, 
What I would rather do is try and scale my business so I have people who can be responsible for some of the jobs that I really shouldn't be doing so that then I can put that down and I can go and spend time with the kids. I don't want them to be the ones that I put down. It's easy to say, oh, can someone else go and get them? But really, they love it when I pick them up. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I am, I'm working really hard to delegate within the business so that I can have meetings, have fantastic conversations like this, generate new business, come up with some great ideas, and then give somebody a project that they can get along with and I can go home and have dinner with the kids. That's, that's the dream. Not always realised, but that's what the point I'm trying to get to in a seamless fashion. One day I'd like to take a holiday and just turn my phone off, you know? Yeah, well, <laughs> that is something I find that everyone is trying to do, aren't they? We've been watching the Bill Gates inside his brain absolutely phenomenal how he has yeah. built a business and how he takes time off not to be away with his family but time off to be with himself to read books and, and yeah. you know how do you how do you better yourself how do you actually keep abreast of everything that's going on do you have to take time out even from your children and your husband to say right I need to I need yeah. to see what's out there I'm, I am, a, it's not very enjoyable at the moment, but I am a news junkie. So I'm really interested in politics. I do a lot of reading of fact and biographies, but really going to the gym is the time that I really have when I'm not with my husband or my kids. When I was working in restaurants before I had kids, I had never once been inside a gym and you know, you couldn't pay me to do it, but it has given me a lot more energy and a lot yeah. more drive to have personal goals and kind of small victories, which are completely removed from work. And it's manageable, you know, in lockdown, I could, I could do it in the garden, and now I go to a gym or go to a class. But it's, it's entirely separate from everything else. And I can't look at my phone. That's the only time in the day. I go to the cinema, I'm gonna check my phone. If yeah. I go out to a restaurant, I'm gonna check my phone, but I'm not gonna do it when I'm in an exercise class. So yeah, the gym has really been game-changing because it's just that hour which is completely separate from everything else in my life and I say I say it to people a lot when they say they don't have the time yeah I don't have the time either but I have to be selfish about about doing that because I, I think I'd go a bit mad otherwise and I'd sort of lose <laughs> <laughs> I'd lose track of everything if I didn't have that kind of hour of clarity you know your best ideas come to you when you're in the shower don't they those yes, you're not yes, doing anything absolutely. else absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah so in the gym uh, in the shower I need that reset so just just one thing and I I, I don't often ask this question, Katie. I've asked it, I think, once before. But what's the typical ingredients in your handbag? Oh, my handbag is such a mess. My husband's like absolutely <laughs> horrified by things that are in my handbag. Um, my handbag, right? So at the moment, I got this new. I got this new bag because it's both. A, <laughs> I suppose yeah, it, it does sum me up. It's <laughs> it's a gym bag. <laughs> which has also got a laptop case in, which also has a cooling section at the front that you can kind of keep bottles and warm stuff in. So it's, it's a, it really is like a one-man bag. It's a Mary Poppins style. It looks like a professional bag, but then, like, you know, my spare underwear and gym accoutrement all falls out. I've got my trainers in the front pocket. So, yeah, everything in my bag is there. That sounds amazing, physical. actually. Yeah, I think a lot of people so could do with that bag. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So like hidden pockets. It's got a little yeah waterproof section. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, it's a sort of a ready-to-go bag, isn't it? Yeah, I just wish someone would pack it for me because I just end up stuffing loads <laughs> of stuff into it and just kind of hoping for the best. Yeah, it's just like you know, my, my husband will help me. Well, help me. He will sort out the car and he'll remove all the things from the car that I need to survive, like my spare shoes, my you know my extra clothes, my books from last year, the thing I wanted to read, my extra nappies. And uh, I have a clean car, but I have none of the things I need. So I just, you know, pile it all in and um, <laughs> try and carry, try and get through that way. Got lots of things in reserve. Over the next few months and possibly years, you know, me and my husband are going to be embarking on new projects. And um, the economic climate now is obviously very uncertain, but you, it's definitely shown us that we have to do the things that, one, we're good at, and two, that make us really happy. Mm. So, um, you know, you ask yourself a lot of questions when the world turns upside down and uh, setting a path for the future that kind of works for our family but also kind of fulfills us professionally is, is really important. So I think for me, I've got my feet paddling below the surface always but I, I need to now make that decision to kind of do a lot more delegating and just do the jobs that I enjoy. And, and for him as well, we're kind of looking at a future that is hopefully you know, going to have a slightly different balance to the way that it did before. That's really exciting. I think the the, the virus has 
changed the mindset of a lot of people actually and made given them space and time to think about maybe changing things going forward so that's quite interesting yeah I think a lot of people said they don't want things to go back the way that they were but you know inevitably everything's going to be very frayed at the edges now people are still going to have to earn money businesses are going to have to survive and there's going to be a lot of kind of scrambling now in the next um the next phase mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's it's about kind of choosing where you spend your time, you know, working with businesses that really have fantastic um, ideas that are driven, that have the right kind of goals that, um, that you can really believe in. Katie Underwood, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much for taking the time out because I know you're very, very busy, but thank you for joining us here in Women Making Waves. So, Linda, Katie Underwood, what a very confident young woman she is. I know. Really interesting to chat to, wasn't she? Really, really yeah. pleasant. And you can see, again, like we said before, there's this energy in mm. some of these entrepreneurs. They're always successful no matter what they do. And I love the way she talks about her dad and that moment I when... <laughs> I love I it. Thought that was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Sneaking back up into the attic and setting yeah. up a business when he should have been at school. Her dad was extraordinary. I mean, you know, how do you hold that together? How do you say to your mum, yeah, I'm still going to school, but I go upstairs. That is a true entrepreneur, isn't it, who literally wants to get on it with is. stuff. That's all we have time for in this edition of Women Making Waves. We would very much like to thank our guests, Katie Underwood and Christine McLaughlin. Now, if you know of a woman who is making waves, we'd like to speak to her. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. Women Making Waves is a jibber-jabber production.